Well, Mark, thank you so much for the kind invitation and for your words. And for the ministry here at Grace Presbyterian, it is uh, very comforting to know that there are people of common faith here on this island as we do our work at Stony Brook. It looks like the Stony Brook School is overtaking the Grace Pulpit. I know that Andrew Barber was here last week. Uh, you definitely led with our best there. I know he very much enjoys being here with you, as do I. Well, um, I picked an interesting passage today, but I think on reading it, you could see why I might have chosen it. And so I want to read it to you, and then we'll pray, and then I'll share a few things. But here's the word from Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 4, and verse 10. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, for the truth of your word. This is your word. From Genesis to Revelation, Father, your word is true. It is all profitable, useful, for correcting, for instructing, for leading, for guiding. Lord, we give you praise that you are so gracious that you would give us your word that speaks to us. It's living and active. So we pray, Father, for your word to come forth today, but by your spirit, you would work it into our hearts. You would turn us towards you. You would make us more like yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's a good thing that God has sanctified my impulses uh, for revenge because back in January, Pastor Mark came and preached at Stony Brook, and he did the floss, which for the uninitiated is a dance before his sermon in our venerated chapel, the likes of which Billy Graham and Tim Keller and others have preached in. I don't think they danced the floss before they spoke. I know you couldn't imagine him doing something like that. Uh, people still talk about that, and I think they will for some time to come. I'm not going to do that today for you all, so rest easy. Well, when I learned of Mark's accident, I rushed to help because he's a beloved brother and friend, but because I share a similar misfortune. Back in July, I had an accident, bike accident. We share that passion for biking. I was going down the hill at 30 miles an hour. My tire blew, and I became int intimately acquainted with the laws of physics and the asphalt. Any other year, this would have been a curious thing that we both had similar serious bike accidents. But after all, this is 2020. 2020 has achieved near curse word-like status for many of us. A friend of mine had his car broken into recently and the first word out of his mouth was 2020. I would surmise that you've had similar moments this year where it seems like the world that you knew suddenly vanished. From a leadership perspective, it has felt like everything is contested. Things that normally would be a breeze are all of a sudden really difficult, like I'm running into molasses 
up a hill with a piano on my back, and it's raining in January. <laughs> but God was gracious to prepare me through, for this through his word. About a year ago at this time, I distinctly remember it, in my daily devotions, I couldn't help get away from a passage from the prophet Haggai. You have had that happen in your life, maybe not Haggai, but you've had these passages that keep coming up for you over and over again. Well, this was one of them. Everywhere I seemed to turn, I saw it. And it's this. It's where God says, tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall. I remember thinking, shake the heavens and the earth? What do you mean, Lord? At that time for us, enrollment was great. The stock market was, at, was up big. And we had big plans to expand our school. What could possibly be shaken or need shaking? Little did I know. Winston Churchill once said, there's no worse mistake in public leadership than to hold out false hopes soon to be swept away. The people can face peril or misfortune with fortitude and buoyancy, but they bitterly resent being deceived or finding that those responsible for their affairs are themselves dwelling in a fool's paradise. So is the challenge for Christian leaders. I want to propose to you that God has indeed shaken the heavens and the earth and that God's church in America is operating under a new paradigm. We are broadly speaking in the house of mourning. Now, I don't have any hard data for this, only that every single Christian I seem to talk to these days is saying, this is really difficult. As I talk to Christian leaders across the country, I hear this similar refrain, it is so hard right now. We are so challenged at this time. And as Americans, we have a really hard time with this. We like triumph. We like positivity. We run from sadness. And generally speaking, we have enjoyed ease, prosperity, and Christian freedom in our country for a long time, which is the blessing from God. But like Job, who says to his wife when she encourages Job to curse God for their misfortune, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive also evil? Or consider another verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And while we may chafe at the concept of being in the house of mourning, our passage will show us that in the house of mourning, God has deeper wisdom here than anywhere else under the sun. And the living, that's you and me, will lay it to heart. I'd like to share with you four principles that I pray will help you navigate these times so that you don't fall into cynicism, despair, or numbness while in the house of mourning. First, the house of mourning shatters the illusion of control. The house of mourning shatters the illusion of control. Prolonged time in the house of feasting tends to cause us to think we have it all figured out. 
The singer-songwriter David Wilcox, ca ca Wilcox captures this idea beautifully in his song, All the Roots Grow Deeper When It's Dry. He sings this, It looks so easy, we would change the weather. We would make our world ourselves, our world so small, but slower rhythms, still unheard of, said that every blessed summer someday has to fall. Prosperity will have its season. Even when it's here, it's going by. And when it's gone, we pretend we know the reasons. All the roots grow deeper when it's dry. When things are going well for us, indeed, the world does seem small to us. We have the belief that we can fashion it in the way we want. It bends and conforms to our wise plans and our skill. But then there's a natural disaster or a financial crash or a pandemic, and we realize just how out of our control this world really is. Once the problem is passed, we tend to put our need to control back on the throne and repeat the whole fantasy over again. But this time, we may have a chance to deal it a mortal wound and live the life of faith and dependence that we were created for. There's a great story in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in their temple where they worship their god, Dagon, the fish god. Each day, the Philistine priests go into their temple only to find their statue, Dagon, has fallen flat on his face before the ark. They keep propping it back up until one time it falls and breaks into several pieces, unable to be repaired. Don't you know that's a picture of what we do with our idol of control? We keep propping it up before God only to have it fall back down again and again. My counsel to you today is let it shatter. Don't try to put it back together. On the most practical level, we're getting daily practice at this if we'll only open our eyes and admit it. How many plans have you made in 2020 that didn't go the way you thought? How many business plans have been revised? How many times did you have to cancel something? How many of us who guard our reputations carefully had them slandered for something we didn't do? yet we had no recourse to defend ourselves. How many times have you woken up to face a day with a sense of overwhelmingness, with so many things going on and not one seemingly headed in the right direction? It's like a daily workout regimen that keeps getting harder and harder. And we aren't used to this. We're problem solvers. We roll up our sleeves. We power through. We find a way. But not during these times. I have never felt more weaker and powerless in my leadership than I have during 2020. The sheer volume of problems has made it quite apparent the limits of my human capabilities. But in this time, there's also been a glorious invitation. With each seeming new problem that arises, I'm invited by God to remember that he is reigning sovereignly over all the problems of today and the ones that happened yesterday. I'm reminded that it is not my will be done, but thy will be done. Proverbs 16.33 says this. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And what that means is that every coin flip comes down just the way he wants it, 
let alone presidential elections or the dur duration and virulence of a pandemic. In churches like this one, we're generally okay with the concept of God's sovereignty and Him reigning over the universe. But what about His reign over people? Evil people who seem to be unrestrained in their schemes. Or even more personally, how about people who are persecuting you or are attacking you unjustly? That's where it may become particularly tempting to doubt His sovereignty. And every fiber of our being wants to take control strike back and immediately bring justice to the situation through our own efforts. But that too is under his control and is being worked out according to his purposes. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has worked out everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. During this time in the house of mourning, God is calling us to trust him. You can always draw a straight line from a person's need to control to their lack of trust in the goodness of God. This is why Jesus was asleep in the boat when the storm was raging, or why he tarried when he first heard of Lazarus' sickness, or why he persevered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He did these things because he knew his Father was good and in complete control of the wind and the waves, of disease, of even death itself. In Psalm 46, God tells us, Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, and I will be exalted in the earth. I know it's hard, but let's let let's let him demonstrate his total control over our situation. He is able. Number two, the house of mourning teaches us to be comfortable in our discomfort. One of the things that trainers of endurance athletes of any kind or any serious athlete will tell you that in order to be truly successful, you have to befriend hardship and pain. It's part of any serious competition. The wheat gets separated from the chaff in the sports world through people's willingness or unwillingness to befriend their discomfort. Matt Wilpers, who's a triathlon coach and instructor for Peloton, not a subtle plug, Mark, <laughs> offered a tip that has helped me tremendously in my own triathlon pursuits. He said, when you're running up a hill, or biking up a hill and it hurts, smile. People will think you're weird, but go ahead and do it anyway. Because it's, it's a way of training yourself to be comfortable in your discomfort. Yes, this doesn't feel good, but I'm okay. And eventually I'll crest this hill and get to a more comfortable plane. Athletes who say to themselves, this is horrible, I don't think I can go on very longer, I just have to quit, well, they don't last very long. The equivalent in the spiritual realm is offering praise and thanksgiving in the house of mourning. Please know that I'm not encouraging you to ignore pain or put on some kind of Panglossian veneer where you just pretend everything's okay. We don't need that. No, I'm saying acknowledge the pain, stare at it, in the face, and give thanks and praise anyway. There's something of cosmic significance happening when we do this. Do you remember Satan's premise in the book of Job? That if God were to change Job's circumstances, he would surely curse God. Job wouldn't do it. He refused to allow his circumstances to undo everything he knew to be true about God. Bill Johnson, pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, tells a story of his friend, Dick Mills, 
who was really going through a hard time. And he got two chairs and put them in the room. And he said, sit down, devil. I'm going to worship God, and you're going to watch me. When we give thanks and praise to God in the midst of difficulties and don't give in to self-pity, the enemy of our souls receives a serious body blow. I can't tell you how it all works, but he is thwarted in a profound way. In 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat is facing multiple armies gathering to attack him, far beyond his ability to handle, it states that he organized his prayer and praise team. They were at the front of the army. And as they began to sing in praise, God set an ambush against the attacking armies so that they turned on each other. And Jehoshaphat only had to come up to the top of the pass and look on the defeat of all of his enemies. The causality between praise and victory is unmistakable. And while praise and thanksgiving are accomplishing much in the heavenlies, they're also doing something profound in us, which makes us so much more healthy and attractive for the gospel. With all the challenge and hardships and difficulties of the past eight months, I have become increasingly grateful for the little things. The house of mourning has a way of enabling us to move out of a deserving posture and into a thankful one. God, thank you for my family. Thank you that I got to go on a run today. God, thank you for a peaceful dinner. Thank you for a good night's sleep. Thank you for my colleagues' acumen. Thank you for in-person church. God, thank you that you chose me and put me in a leadership position with the chance to work with you and make decisions for the benefits of others. In the most paradoxical of ways, the house of mourning has made me more thankful than I've ever been in my life. How? Because by God's grace, I've allowed the pain to rivet my attention to the good things in life. That's getting at something of what our passage means when it says, by sorrow of face, the heart is made glad. As I praise and thank God for the difficult things in my life, because I know that in love and wisdom, he's allowed them and is working for my good through them, I'm also concentrating on the thanksgiving-worthy things that are already in my hands. It may not feel natural at first to give thanks in the midst of pain and frustration, but do it and keep doing it. God knew what he was doing when he told us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Thankful people are long-haul people. When you smile going up the hill, you learn not to be so afraid of the next one. We may be in the house of mourning for a while. It's not too late to start training. Be thankful. Number three, the house of mourning alters our relationship to weakness and failure. In the house of feasting, we can get into a very unhealthy pattern of trying to pretend like weaknesses and failures don't exist. No one wants to look bad. No one wants to slow down the victory parade. So we pretend we are perfect in a 24-7 competition to keep up with all the other prosperous, seemingly perfect people who are all around us, while deep down wondering to ourselves, what if they find out about me? Most people are thinking that, by the way, so you're not alone. The House of Mourning is the golden invitation we've been waiting to admit the true reality of our situation and acknowledge our weakness, brokenness, and our need for interdependence and humility.
You see, when everyone's in the house of mourning, who are you trying to keep up with? Our vulnerabilities are collectively laid bare. As the reality of the house of mourning helps us not to treat suffering, weakness, and failure like radioactive substances, we begin to see them as gateways to tremendous personal growth for ourselves and blessing for others. Back in the summer, a good friend of mine introduced me to the Japanese art form kintsugi. Some of you may be familiar with it. Kintsugi is when the cracks that a ceramic or porcelain bowls or cups receive over time are filled in and painted with gold, silver, or platinum, not as a way to hide them, but as a way to enhance the piece's beauty. In other words, it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise. Now let me move from the metaphorical to the concrete. In 2007, I hurt my back trying to lift a piano. Yes, it was stupid, but I was ahead of school who was determined to prove to everyone he was Superman. I heard a pop in my back, and it has never been the same. I went through four and a half years of daily intense pain that therapy, medicine, and doctors couldn't fix. As many of you know, there's a very strong mind-back connection. It's one of those things that the more you think about it, the more it hurts. But I slowly began to improve, mostly by not obsessing over it daily. But I began to realize that profane, profound changes had happened in my person. As a result of my pain, I became way more empathetic and sympathetic with people who were suffering. I became way more patient because I had to slow down, way more dependent on other people rather than thinking I could do everything myself. These were profound changes that I don't know would have happened otherwise. Yes, I'm looking forward to my glorified body without the daily maintenance of a bad back, but now I paint it gold because it's been the gateway to so much personal growth and blessing for others. And just as there are these physical areas of vulnerability, there are also emotional areas as well. These areas we try so hard to hide, but God is faithful to come after us and put us in a situation where our greatest fears are in front of us, and we must trust him for power greater than our own to get through. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when he states the following. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul paints his weaknesses and difficulties gold. He's not hiding them. He's made friends with them. He boasts about them, gladly talks about them. Why? Is it because he's a liberated man, comfortable about talking about his vulnerability? No, it's because he knows they are a sure conduit. He trades his weakness for the power of Christ. My friends, the power of Christ resting on you. Even though it's invisible, it's just as real as the pews you are sitting in. It's what you want every day of your life, particularly when times 
are difficult. It's the power to endure. It's the power to love your enemies. It's the power not to answer reviling with reviling. It's the power to bring healing, and it's available to you. It's free to the individuals who are willing to admit their weaknesses and invite Christ into them. And by the way, past sin is also covered under this paradigm. One of the great things about the Bible is it doesn't whitewash its heroes. Do you think Peter writes the exquisite epistles full of tenderness and forgiveness if he hadn't have fallen so profoundly? Do you think David writes the 51st Psalm if the whole sordid deal with Bathsheba and Uriah hadn't have happened? Do you think Paul becomes the foremost champion of grace and one of its most eloquent preachers if he hadn't been a persecutor of Christians? Under the banner of God's grace, even your sinful failures can be redeemed to bless others. God can paint those gold too if you let him. And lastly, the house of mourning clarifies our longings. If you've stayed with me this long, you may be getting the idea that I'm advocating masochism, the pursuit and enjoyment of pain. I can assure you that I am not. Because what the house of mourning also teaches us is that suffering and hardship and pain are not the way it is supposed to be. When you look around and you see all of us wearing masks, and only a certain number of people who are allowed to be in the service today, it's your ability to gather with your family over Thanksgiving's in jeopardy, or you have a relative who's sick, or there's voter fraud, or racial injustice, or economic hardship, and you say, that stinks, this stinks. Guess what? You're right. But acknowledging that something stinks goes awry when it becomes about deserving and devolves into self-pity. When you say this stinks, I deserve better, why is this happening to me? You are missing important cosmic signposts. When you are living in the house of mourning, you are more in touch than ever with the fact that things are not as they ought to be. That there's something fundamentally wrong with the universe. But by God's grace, you realize also that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. That we truly are aliens and strangers in this world. That we are looking for a heavenly city whose builder and architect is God. And that we ought to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ, fully setting our hope on what is to come. These moments of insight obtained in the house of mourning are so critical for us, so critical in fact that the writer of Ecclesiastes encourages us to visit often because in times of prosperity, we are apt to forget and make the mistake that this is our home and that life is about obtaining ease, comfort, and pleasure. But is it wrong to cry out for relief and restoration from the house of mourning? Of course not. Look at our psalm from the scripture reading today, Psalm 90. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Do you know how many times in the last eight months I have cried out to the Lord, please deliver me, please let the sun shine on me again? 
Please restore that which has been lost. These are not wrong. The Psalms, the scriptures are full of such cries. Getting in touch with lament, getting in touch with our sorrow and the way that things are not the way they ought to be is a fully godly thing to do under the sun. But what's not good is to long for a previous time, to go back to the way things were, to say, why were the former days better than these? God has his church in the house of mourning now because he wants to make us more like him than we've ever been and prepare for us and prepare us for a future that he only he knows. Let him do his work. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. His steadfast love will be new every morning and he will turn our mourning into dancing in his time and his way. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we look to you now. You are good. We affirm that in our pain. We affirm that as we look around and see things the way they are and they're not the way they should be. But you are reigning sovereign over it, God. You are bringing all things. You are making all things new. And you're doing that in us. You are so gracious. You are conforming us to the likeness of your son. We are becoming more like Jesus, more patient, more kind, more loving, more tender, more aware of others. What a glorious work you're doing. Help us to value it. Help us not to run from it, to despise it. Father, we pray that you would restore us. We pray that you would come, that you would remove the pandemic, that you would restore us to each other. But God, we know that what you are doing is wise and good and that you have a plan and you will work it. We give you praise. We thank you, God, in all circumstances. We rejoice always. Help us to pray without ceasing. In Jesus' name, amen.